0: Six part series in the book of Titus. So if you would have that open again once more, if you closed it to page 998 in the church Bibles, we're going to begin in Titus chapter 1. And I have to thank Andy uh, for giving me the privilege and opportunity of doing a series, actually. It's been many years since I had the opportunity to run right through an entire epistle. So I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, and we'll have 6 weeks taking these 3 chapters uh two bits at a time to work our way right through Titus which is a really encouraging but also challenging epistle written by the apostle Paul to Titus his helper his co-worker in ministry who's been left on Crete and we'll think a little bit more about that context and setting next week uh, but Paul writing towards the end of his life encouraging a younger minister doing gospel work to continue to look to the grace of God in the gospel so that it might drive godly living. That's really the overarching theme for us over these next six weeks of evenings in Titus, is that training by grace, grace training, we could say, is what grows us in godly living. Grace training for godly living. That's what Titus seems to be about. And this evening, we're going to just begin by looking at verses 1 to 4. But before we do that, I just, I just want to fast forward a little bit and show you a few highlights, a bit of a trailer of what might be coming in these weeks ahead. Because there are two epicenters, two sort of gospel hearts that beat in these three chapters of Titus. And I want you to see them now. And I'd love it if you were able to be reading and maybe rereading this letter over the next month and more as we come back to it again and again in the evenings. Let me show you the first gospel heart that beats in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Do you see there? For the grace God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does grace do? Verse 11, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace has appeared, and grace trains us to live godly lives. But it's, it's that way round. It's grace that trains us for godliness. It's not trying to be godly, And trying to work hard in order to please God, of course. There's a gospel heart beating here in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And we're going to have to keep that in view even this evening. But there's another another wonderful little uh, gospel heart that beats in chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. So if you cast your eyes down there with me, you see that word but. So Paul's shifting from verse 3 where he remembers what he was like as a sinner apart from Christ. And then into verse 4, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and Paul goes on. You've got to remember that's coming in chapter 3. God saved us not because of our own works, but because of his mercy. These gospel hearts that beat in chapters 2 and 3 of Titus, Titus, show us that grace trains us for godly living. Grace in the gospel trains us for godly living. That's what Titus is all about. And I hope by the end of these six weeks, we will be challenged, empowered, driven by that grace in the gospel to grow in godliness so that we might be like those that Paul describes in chapter 2, verse 10. Do you see that little purpose clause at the end of verse 10? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's what we want to be about as a church family here. Beautifying, uh, adorning, making more beautiful the doctrine of God our Savior. Beautifying the gospel with our lives. Grace training godly living is what Titus is about. But let's have a look at how Paul begins this letter this evening in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we often skip over very quickly as we are used to Paul opening his letters with various greetings. The greeting here in Titus is second in length and complexity only to the greeting in Romans chapter 1. So. What that tells us is that Paul, who never does anything by accident, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who never does anything by accident, has packed this greeting full of themes that we need to have our attention focused upon before we get into the rest of the letter. So just have a look at those verses with me very quickly just now. Paul, how does he describe himself? He's a servant, a servant, a slave of God. And an apostle. Paul's a servant, one who serves God, one who is accountable to God, but one who is also invested with God by authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And everything he says about himself here in these opening verses, he is saying intentionally so that Titus will imitate him. Titus may not be Paul. He may not be one of those initial apostles, but he has the same kind of gospel authority from the Lord as a minister, and Paul wants Titus to follow the pattern that he lays out in these opening verses. He's a servant of God, and he serves Jesus Christ as one who's sent with the gospel, an apostle. And why is Paul sent out? He's sent out, verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and Their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Do you see those two reasons for which Paul is sent and for which Titus is going to be sent? And indeed, for which we are sent out. Two reasons. One, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. We're going to think a bit more about what that means. And two, for their knowledge of the truth, but it's a knowledge that accords with godliness. It's not just knowledge that stays up here in our heads. It's knowledge that filters into our lives, into godly living, knowledge that accords with godliness. And then verse 2. Do you see that little phrase? One, you might be tempted to pass over. In hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. And the commentator's... Have a lot of a lot to say about the options here with this little phrase and how it relates to what surrounds it. But what is going on with this phrase is amazing because this stands at the center, the center of everything Paul's doing in, in this introduction. In here really means upon, or on the basis of, if we tease it out, on the basis of the hope of eternal life. That is, the faith of God's elect is grounded in the hope of eternal life and increasing in the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness is also on the basis of eternal life. The hope of eternal life is what stands beneath and empowers the growth in both faith and knowledge that accords with godliness. And we'll spend much of our time this evening thinking about that phrase, the hope of eternal life. But it goes on in verse 2. This hope of eternal life, this life which God, who never lies, promised. It's a life that was promised before the ages began, promised by God, who never lies. And verse 3, it's a life that now, at this time, at the proper time, has been manifested. It's been revealed. It's been unveiled completely. How? Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted, says Paul by the command of God our Savior. That's how the flow of thought develops in these opening verses, very compact. The hope of eternal life stands at the center. It's eternal life which has been promised by God from the ages past, revealed now through preaching, and it's a hope of eternal life that empowers faith and godly living. So we need to know this evening more about this hope of eternal life and why it stands at the center of what Paul wants to do in this letter to his protege, Titus. And what we really want to do is to lay hold of the hope of eternal life. We need to take hold of this for ourselves this evening. Whether you come this evening as one who has trusted in the Lord Jesus for many years, or whether you come this evening not trusting in the Lord Jesus, not knowing where you stand before him, We all need to lay hold more firmly of the hope of eternal life. So we're going to look at the hope of eternal life under three headings very briefly this evening. First of all, hope promised. Secondly, hope proclaimed. And finally, hope's power. Let's have a look at how hope is promised. And I want to ask you as we do that, what are some of the things in your life, even now, that you are hoping for? What do you hope for when you pause to think? Do you hope for a promotion at work, a pay rise perhaps? Are you hoping that you might have done well on recent exams or exams that lie before you if you are studying at the moment? Are you hoping for a new relationship of some kind, a friend who might come alongside you, or hoping that you might be married one day soon? Are you hoping that you might have a nice holiday this summer, time to finally relax and get away from it all and spend some time with your family? What are you hoping for? What is your hope directed towards this evening? Many of you will remember 10 years ago now, in 2008, uh, it was unavoidable, I'm afraid, in the news. The American election at the time uh, was leading up to the primaries in which the Democratic contenders were sort of neck and neck going into those Iowa votes that are at the beginning of the American presidential primaries. And so Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, neck and neck at that point. And Barack Obama's campaign commissioned a poster image that might push him to catch up in the polls with Hillary Clinton. And you remember, you know what that poster is, don't you? Can you picture the poster that came out of that commission to that artist? It's it's famous now because it's got a three-quarters view of Obama looking up, modeled on one of JFK many years ago, looking up to the left, and it has hope emblazoned along the bottom and that's become an icon in many ways, not only of American culture, but of political culture around the world. No matter what your politics, you've seen that image, and you realize that it spoke powerfully to many people. It galvanized it galvanized voters because the message of hope did something. What does hope do? Hope promises the possibility of change and of transformation doesn't it when we hope for something we are looking ahead to the future and we are desiring something that would make our lives better by comparison to what the now as we perceive them. Hope is future in its uh, in its orientation. It looks to the future. And hope promises somehow that transformation, that change, is possible. And that's why that message, that image, resonated so powerfully with so many people. Well, in our text, we have a hope that is held up to us. But it's not that kind of political hope. It's not the kinds of hope that we might have thought of earlier about a pay rise or a holiday or exam results. It is a hope of eternal life. It's a hope of eternal life that God promised, verse 2 tells us, before the ages began. And as we go back to think about from creation onwards, those stories in the Old Testament revealed to us about how God began to promise a transformation for his people— giving eternal life to his people, saving his people from their sins. We can think of many great figures to whom God promised eternal life, can't we? We think of Adam at the very beginning, who after creation sinned, turned his back on God's command, broke God's law, and died spiritually before he died physically. And yet to Adam, God held out the promise of redemption, a promise of eternal life. Or we think of Abraham, perhaps, one who was reaching the age at which many would die and had no children, no descendants, no hope of his name continuing, no hope of a seed to carry on the promise, and who stood before the Lord and said, Lord, how are you going to keep your promise to me? I have no son. And the Lord worked graciously and promised and brought life through that old man And Isaac was born, and the seed continued, and the promise continued. Or we think perhaps of Israel having been returned from exile after being cursed by God and rejected from the land. And Ezekiel, the prophet, speaking to them of God's promises of life, of eternal life in Ezekiel chapter 37. If you've got your Bibles, you might keep a finger in in Titus chapter 1, and you might like to turn back to Ezekiel Ezekiel chapter 37, where in that famous text about the valley of dry bones, the prophet claims that the Lord, by speaking through the prophet and by the power of his spirit, is going to breathe new life into dead bodies, into dead dry bones. And in chapters 37 of Ezekiel, verses 13 and 14, we read this. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. What kind of life is being promised? It's resurrection life. It's returning life to the dead. Verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. It's spiritual life given from God. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken it and I will do it, declares the Lord. That is the kind of life which Titus 1-2 tells us has been promised from ages past, eternal life, life given by God, powerfully by his spirit, to raise the dead, to breathe new life into dead bodies. And that's the life that we're pointed to that has true hope for us, true hope, the hope of eternal life. And it's a life that's been promised by one who never lies. If we had more time, we'd turn to Hebrews chapter 6 and see there, again, a reference back to God's promise to Abraham, which he sealed then with an oath that by two things, God who cannot lie might be seen to be absolutely trustworthy. And there in Hebrews 6, we're reminded that that promise again came to rest in the Lord Jesus, who in the language of Hebrews is an anchor for our hope, an anchor who has already entered into heaven behind the veil. That Jesus himself embodies the hope of eternal life, because in him these promises of God have been fulfilled, and the Spirit of God and the resurrection life of God have broken forth into this very age and world, the hope of eternal life promised before the ages began. So what does it mean to lay hold of the hope of eternal life? Well, it means that we need to lay hold of Jesus, that Jesus is the one who is the hope of eternal life. It's in his person and in his work that the Lord holds out to us the hope of eternal life. So whatever else it is that you might be hoping for this year in your life, all of those hopes are absolutely relativized and pale by comparison to the hope of eternal life held out to you in the Lord Jesus by the God who promised eternal life. Lay hold of Jesus and you will lay hold of the hope of eternal life. But it's not just hope that's been promised, as in verse 2. It's also, verse 3, Hope of eternal life that has been proclaimed. Hope that's been proclaimed. Some of you, like uh, like us in our family, might be fans of the Star Wars movies. And you know that it all began with episode four, strangely, which is entitled A New Hope. A new hope. Lots of hope talked about in that movie. Everything from a Princess Leia saying, Obi-Wan Kenobi, help me, you're my only hope. To the very end, when hope for a new era is proclaimed as the rebellion stands against the empire, a new hope is held out. A new hope is proclaimed because a victory has been won. Well, in verse 3, we're told that at the proper time, God, who promised the hope of eternal life, manifested that hope of eternal life. He he revealed it. He unveiled it completely. How did he do so? Through preaching. It's a proclamation. A victory has been won in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and now Paul stands as a herald, proclaiming that victory, proclaiming the life that that victory has, been made, has made possible. And he wants Titus to be proclaiming that, and he wants us to be attending to that proclamation, because it's in the preaching, it's in the proclamation of the hope of eternal life, that God actually works that life in our hearts, in our own lives. Now, last summer, uh, not knowing I'd have the opportunity to work our way right through Titus, we spent quite a bit of time, if you were with us, I think it was last August, thinking about how to apply this to our lives. And I don't want to, I don't want to go to those applications, uh, in a big way again this evening, but I do want to remind you if you were here or if you weren't here, simply to point out that that's an amazing claim. That it's through preaching, it's through the weakness of what I'm doing right now, through what Andy does from this pulpit here, that God promised to reveal transforming eternal life and hope and to change people. It's through preaching, through the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has implications for us and how we engage with preaching. So we thought a little bit about this last summer, about how it is that we prepare our hearts To come to hear the preaching. How it is that we prepare ourselves on a, on a Saturday evening or on a Lord's day morning before we come so that we can be attentive. That we can be rested. That we can be ready to hear. How it is that we might be prayerful even as we listen. Prayerful for the one preaching. Prayerful that the Spirit might apply to our hearts just what we need to hear. Prayerful that it wouldn't simply remain an exercise of understanding our heads but that it would convict and transform our hearts as we listen to the preaching of the hope of eternal life. Is that a phrase that kindles affection in your heart this evening as you hear it? The hope of eternal life. Even as I say those words from this pulpit, is that a phrase that is so familiar to your ears that it sort of goes in one side and out the other? Or is that a phrase that stirs in you a longing and a desire to lift your eyes from all the hopes and all of the pressures and all the tasks that lie ahead of you this week and to see that in the Lord Jesus Christ you have a new kind of life available to you. That if you are already trusting in him by faith, eternal life is not something that simply awaits us at the last day. Hear this. I want you to understand this. That the hope of eternal life that was promised has now been proclaimed. And it's the proclamation that Jesus has already been raised from the dead, having paid for our sins, and new life is available now. Not just a life in heaven that will last forever, although that is true, but a life that's available now to you. A different kind of life. A deeper more vibrant life available to you, held out in the Lord Jesus, the hope of eternal life. Is that something you long to lay hold of this evening, to lay hold of this week, to have the kind of life that each morning as you awaken, you remember that the Lord Jesus is present with you as your Savior. He is present by his Spirit at work in and for you, that he already knows what lies ahead of you, day by day, and that he is there working powerfully in you, that you might grow in godliness and that you might be reminded that he is your Savior. The hope of eternal life, even now, available to us because it's been proclaimed. Let's lay hold of that hope of eternal life even this week. And finally, hope's power, because as Paul begins this letter to Titus, and as we've already glanced ahead to see see the gospel proclaimed so clearly in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and then again in chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, we need to be reminded before we get into the rest of the letter in which there are many commands, many demands of the kind of life that accords with godliness, what it looks like, to live the Christian life in a way that honors God and adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. We're going to hear those commands, and some of them are going to be very challenging to us, very convicting to us. But before we go there, Paul wants us to know that the hope of eternal life is where the power lies to stir up faith in our hearts and to join up knowledge and godliness that we before we move into those injunctions those exhortations that begin in chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 5 and following we need to remember that hope the hope of eternal life holds power some of you will remember perhaps in school or as a child having read the story from ancient greek mythology about pandora's box do you remember that story where uh, pandora uh, this this uh, mortal woman has been given a box by the gods and she opens the box. She's not meant to open it, but she opens the box and outfly all the evils and all the sickness and the plagues that then from that time on uh, are present in the world, making life difficult and miserable. Pandora's box opened. But at the end of that that myth, at that story, she closes the box and there's one thing that isn't let out of the box. Do you remember what that is? It's hope. It's hope that remains trapped in the box. Some of you will also be familiar with the fact, perhaps, that Friedrich Nietzsche, one of those philosophers of the 19th century, who, whether you know his name or not, has set the agenda for modern and postmodern life, an agenda of cynicism and of nihilism, said that hope that was trapped in Pandora's box needs to stay trapped there because all hope is false hope. And the falsest hope, Nietzsche said, is the hope in the Lord Jesus, the crucified Jew, as Nietzsche referred to him. Because those who are foolish enough to hope in a man who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago and think that he can do anything for them are simply deluding themselves. Hope is deceptive. Hope is locked away And even if it went out of the box, Nietzsche says, it would disappoint because it's it's an illusory hope. Is that the kind of hope that we're talking about here? Is that the kind of hope that Paul points Titus to and us to this evening? Well, our culture tends to talk about hope in these ways. In fact, our, our common language even talks about hope in these ways, doesn't it? If we say, I hope that it might be nice weather tomorrow, what are, we, what are we saying? We're using hope in a way that's almost interchangeable with wish, aren't we? And yet, as many who have thought deeply about hope point out, you can only hope for something, really, that's future. You can't say, I hope that Villa might have won yesterday because that's already done and dusted. You can't change what, what, what happens in the past. That's no longer a hope. You can wish for that, but it's futile wishing. You can only hope for what's in the future. And further, let me point out, you can only hope for something that has a basis in reality, that has uh, that's constrained by rationality and reality. You can't hope for something that's impossible, that could never happen. Hope not to be illusory has to have a power to change us. And that's the kind of hope that Paul is pointing Titus to this evening. It's the kind of hope that Paul himself proclaimed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just read to you and remind you this hope of eternal life proclaimed by Paul, powerful to transform. How does Paul himself encapsulate it in this text? Here's what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Nietzsche's wrong. It wasn't just a Jew dying on a cross in in, in a futile effort to change his own society and nothing else. Christ died for our sins. And the hope that is based on the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a hope that holds out salvation and forgiveness for sinners such as ourselves. And Paul goes on, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Not only did Jesus' death achieve a victory of forgiveness from sin, but he was raised to new life. This is a historical fact, Paul says. And Look at all the witnesses who can attest to the reality of this fact. This is not a hope that is illusory. This is a hope rooted in historical reality. It's a hope whose reality has already broken in and yet whose final reality still remains in the future. This is a different kind of hope from any hope the world can hold out. And it's a hope that can stand up to the skepticism and the cynicism and the nihilism of the culture around us. It is the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. And this is the hope, Paul says, that is going to drive our faith. It's for the faith of God's elect, not only for those who need to be converted. And maybe you're here this evening, not having yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, not having yet repented of your sin before him. Well, this hope held out is for you in the Lord Jesus, because he is the one who can bring you from death to life. He is the one who can save you from the wrath and condemnation that your sins deserve. It is for the faith of God's elect. It's to stir up and create faith in the hearts of those sinners who need to trust in the Lord Jesus. But it's not only for the faith of conversion. It's the hope of eternal life, verse 2, that empowers the faith of all of us who already trust in the Lord Jesus. It's that hope that we've got to go back to day after day and focus our attention on as we think about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus for us that will grow us in our faith, that will grow us as we look to the Lord Jesus into those who can deepen our trust in him. It's also then those that hope of eternal life, verse 2, that empowers a growth in knowledge. It's the kind of thing that makes us want to open up our Bibles and see all of those promises that are referred to here in our text that ultimately come to rest in the Lord Jesus himself and to grow in knowledge of the truth. But finally, it's the hope of eternal life that drives us, that empowers us to be godly, because it's not just a hope that is directed towards eternal life. It is, in fact, eternal life that also supplies hope, and godly living. It's that kind of transformative life that our text speaks of that will enable us to do what Titus is calling us to do, to be trained by grace to live godly lives that adorn the gospel. So this evening as we close, are we those who need to lay hold of the hope of eternal life this week? Absolutely yes. No matter who you are in this room, you must lay hold of the hope of eternal life. You must lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers to you eternal life now. Eternal life promised by God the Father, eternal life achieved by the work of Jesus Christ the Son, and eternal life, as we'll see in Titus chapter 3, applied by the Spirit to our hearts. Lay hold of the hope of eternal life in the Lord Jesus this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for this great promise of the hope of eternal life. And we pray, Lord, even now, even now, that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, helping us to see how desperately we need this quality of life, this kind of life that only comes from you, the life that's only found in the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us as we go from this place this evening, not only to seek life in ourselves, in our work, in our relationships, but to seek instead life found in the Lord Jesus. Help us to know the joy that that life brings, the power to change that's available only because of the life that you offer in the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that we might be people of great hope, hope that is rooted in reality and hope that is directed to a wonderful life available to us by your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name this evening. Amen.